You know, I sort of had a mandate from the owners of Avoce to have Michelin stars. And when you operate with that mandate, it changes how you cook and how you think and how you manage. And in hindsight, none of those things were good. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. Today on the show, Matt is catching up with a familiar name around here. Missy Robbins is the co-author of the cookbook Pasta and chef-owner of the New York City restaurants Missy and Lilia. Matt, what did you and Missy talk about? I've known Missy Robbins for over a decade and consider her a friend and simply respect the way she has such a singular focus in creating and executing some of the most delicious Italian cooking in this fine city of Italian cooking. In this interview, we go back and talk about the heady days of running two major New York City restaurants in the late aughts. We also talk about her new cookbook, Pasta, that she wrote with my former taste colleague, Talia Baiocchi. We talk about the extensive research and reporting the authors made and how the book has taken off since it was released last fall. Here's Matt catching up with Missy. Missy Robbins, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. So glad to be here. Finally, you're here. I love it. I wrote about your great book, Pasta, last year, late last year. But now we're IRL, finally. I know. It's amazing. Finally. I wanted to take our listeners back to a time in New York in the fall of 2008 when you were named the chef of Avoce Madison in Columbus. I feel like reflecting on that period... These are like really big deal restaurants that you were running. You were running both of them. And I just like that time in New York was like peak restaurant foodie celebrity chef moment. I think after that, we maybe were starting to decline. Like, so you were in the mix. What was that like running those two restaurants? Very scary. Um, <laughs> you know, that was a that was a crazy time. I had been in Chicago from 2003 to 2008 and which working at Spiaggia, which was an amazing restaurant and really changed my career. It got me to 100% want to do Italian and focus on that. And But I knew I didn't want to live in Chicago, and I, I really wanted to come back to New York. And I But I knew I like needed it to do it in, in the right way and not just like take any job or live the same way that I was living before. And so I waited, and I was going to open my own place. And then the Voce job came along. And at the time, Andrew Carmelini was like the biggest deal in town, and he was leaving. And I got hired somehow to take his place, and it was a terrifying moment because I left New York as a CDC of a hotel, very yeah. different, and I came back an executive chef and, and partner of these two restaurants that were like the most popular, I mean, Avoche Columbus wasn't open yet, but Avoche mm-hmm. Madison was a, about a year old, and it was it was on fire, and I felt like I had these giant shoes to fill, and but it was exciting. It was like mm-hmm. the first time that I was going to be an executive chef without sort of a chef over me and a, a, a time to like really start honing in on what is your cooking and what is your style. And, you know, I don't I don't think I got there until Lilia, honestly. But that five years was really formative for me in, in many ways, but also was really difficult. And I ended up leaving after five years and honestly not even knowing if I was going to cook anymore. I left. I didn't have a job. I decided to take a year off. I had I had cooked for 20 years at that point and had never really taken any time. And I just reflected and I had fun and I 
explored a lot and I and I figured it out and I decided to open Lilia. But um, that was a that was a tough job. Yeah, I recognize that. That's why yeah. I wanted to go to that question from the jump. Um, but take us back to the Madison location and just those first couple years of, of being at, at a voce. I mean, what were those dining rooms like? Intense. They were busy, especially in the spring. There was a patio at yeah. a voce Madison. It was open for lunch and dinner. And I again, I was like finding myself as a chef. Yeah. And I think that's a hard thing to do with the pressure of running very, very busy dining rooms, like you never kind of let up and you're always, you know, I sort of had a mandate from the owners of Avoce to to have Michelin stars. And when you operate with that mandate, it changes mm. how you cook and how you think and how you manage. And in hindsight, none of those things were good. Mm. Those things were actually at the end of the day, negative. You're you're cooking to see if something's pretty enough or if it's going to be good enough for a Michelin star. And what does a Michelin star really do for you at the end of the day? And I'm not like taking away from Michelin stars, but like it was the, it's funny because it was the reason why I wanted to take the job. I was like fascinated by this company that was so focused on, they were in London and their whole focus was on having Michelin star restaurants. And they had everything from three-star, very fancy French to two-star Japanese. And they wanted Avoce to have stars. And Avoce Columbus was like doing 400 covers a night. And that's that's really hard quality to maintain and creativity to constantly maintain and at, at those levels. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, it, it – it kind of drove me away from Avoce. It became something that like wasn't exciting, and it and it made me want to do something completely different. But you are is that what you were getting at? I think that's what you were. Getting I love at. that <laughs> memory because that that period in time, um, I think a lot of our listeners maybe weren't around in New York at that time, or just maybe we've moved on from that period when the 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 cult of the Michelin, the celebrity chef of, uh, of Carmelini being the biggest biggest name in town, which is true. I agree. I would to say that working in an environment where where Michelin stars are so important, do you still find yourself drawn towards dining out at Michelin star restaurants? Do you do you Sometimes yeah. I find them, I mean particularly when I travel, but sure. I but it's not my main thing. It's not what inspires me the most. I like to see it to kind of re-engage with fine dining and 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 Michelin in the States is sort of all over the place. Like you can have a restaurant like La Bernadette have a Michelin star and you can have, you know, a pizza place have a Michelin star. And it's not it wasn't like that when I started cooking and, and I strive to be like the European restaurants. So I think I think it's changed a lot. And it's not it's not what excites me the most. I want to go to restaurants that inspire me and if they happen to have a michelin star amazing but i'm not like out chasing michelin star meals (laughs) no i I didn't get that and they're not fun for the most part well a lot of times they're serious and i kind of want to dine out for fun now yeah fun is what you're you're owed that after doing (laughs) kind of serious for many years i think so (laughs) let's talk about pasta because i i really love the book i think i've i've mentioned on the podcast several times about how it's one of my favorite books from last year. And I want to talk about how you and your co-author, Talia Baiocchi, a good friend of mine, uh, went on this journey to research it. Yeah. And you went and traveled around Italy. And you were, I saw the notes in person. You really did a lot of, like, note-taking. But take us back to a couple, let's say two memorable moments of just traveling through Italy that really informed the book. 
I mean, I, it's so hard to pick just two. We we did we did three different trips, um, to about two two weeks each, so six weeks total in Italy, north, south, central, and some of it was going places that I had never been before, and but I had like cooked the food and interpreted the food in my own mm-hmm. in my own way, and I think like going back and really seeing some of these dishes, it wasn't. It wasn't like Rome and Amatriciana because I had been there. It was like I had never been to Sardinia before. And unfortunately, we only had a few days in Sardinia. Like a lot of a lot of these stops were very, very quick. But I'd say like the south. I hadn't spent a lot of time in the south and I had spent more time in the north. So Sardinia, where we learned cooler jones, which is that sort of crazy torpedo shape it looks almost braided um filled pasta with potato and i think like making orecchiette in puglia with two different women who taught us and like it was so hard and i had never made orecchiette the proper proper way i had like made up ways of making it not even with proper dough like with my egg dough which is like such a no-no and Talia was so good at the shapes too. We would like be in these places with these awesome people teaching us and I'd be so frustrated. I am like a slow learner and Talia would like pick pick up a knife and do the orgate and hers would be perfect and I'd be like what <laughs> you should you should be the chef. Um but I think I think the south for me was was yeah. definitely the most formative. But then there were places like outside Cortina and 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 learning the uh beet filled pasta from there and that like I had made so many versions, but finally like having it there, um, the Cassenze and having it in this little trattoria and having it better than any Michelin star meal you could possibly have, that to me were like the really big moments and stopping in a, that day, the same day we ate at this little trattoria outside, we stopped in a pasta shop and they only made Cassenze. And they made many, it's not just filled with beets. When you're in Italy, they make it with many different things. And uh we just asked, there was a woman in front and an older woman in back, and we said, could we see what she's doing? Cool. And we ended up spending an hour with her, tasting fillings and forming the pasta and like just talking to her as best we could in broken English, broken Italian. And th- those moments were really unforgettable. So cool. And, and, and a lot of our listeners are going to wonder how, like, how these books are made. And, and so when you go on these three trips... Are you planning a lot ahead of time? Do you put a lot of effort into the Talia itinerary? was planning a lot ahead okay. of time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, shout out to Talia then. Yeah. So, so how um, does that work then? I mean, are you so? On the no, schedule? we we had like <laughs> itineraries, and yeah. they, we we had so much we had to pack in. And remember that the travel part of it was is like one part of the book. There's like mm. twenty years of me cooking and sure. research and being in Italy previously and Talia being in Italy previously but these these trips were very focused and so we had to we had to plan we didn't plan every single restaurant we didn't plan every single pasta shop but there was definitely an itinerary of like we're going to be in this place for two days we're chasing this pasta this is what we want to see and it was intense like I think everyone thought like I was just on vacation screwing around and sure I was on vacation and being in Italy for for 2 weeks at a time is really like it removes you from the world but I think that 
there was like an agenda and it was like, go, go, go. And we, I mean, we drove thousands and thousands of miles. And obviously within that, like we stayed at some beautiful hotels and like met beautiful people and had beautiful meals. And, but like, there was a lot of go, go, go at the same time. I love the books that blend reportage photography and reporting with actual cooking and real um, how-to. And I, I think, as you as you mentioned, the book is informed by your experience at Spiaggia and at Avoce and at Lilia and at Missy. So it's not just about going to Italy and, and picking the, the tomatoes and, and making the sauce. It's like about real instruction. So how do you, as an author, do both effectively in a book? I think, you know, so I think it was really important to us. And Talia really, I, I got to give her a lot of credit. She she is a writer by trade. She is a journalist. Um, she's written her, her own books, which are incredible. And she really helped, really formed the structure of this book. But we, we sat and we brainstormed and we said, okay, mm-hmm. we want to, the idea was sort of following this trajectory of my whole career of saying, and my life in Italian cooking and saying like, okay, you grew up in New Haven, Connecticut, you're not Italian, you're this Jewish kid, grew up in a kosher home, but you grew up eating all this amazing American Italian food. So we knew we wanted to have that. We knew we wanted to have this front matter of teaching people about dough and flour and shapes and in history. And then we knew we wanted to have sort of this, this travel log that was really important to us and like kind of going back to these places and really understanding where these these shapes and these dishes come from and then we have the last the last part of it which is called modern classics which is sort of dishes from Spiaggia, Avoce, Missy, Lilia and 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 a few developed just for the book. I think my favorite part of the book is definitely the part we're talking about with all this travel and I and I did develop so many recipes for the book that like that were specifically for the book that I hadn't done before. So like Agnolotti del, del Plin, um, which is a, a meat-filled pasta from Piemonte. And I had never really done that in the restaurant. I hadn't really done that specific shape. I, I'm not like a huge meat-filled pasta person. And I was like, how do I do this dish? Because it's so important to Italian culture and regional Italian cooking. But how do I do it my my way and still like pay homage to it? And it turned out to be like, I'd say my top like three favorite recipes in the book. So that part was really exciting and, and just testing that and being at home cooking. And that, that was cool. Agnolotti Duplin? Duplin, yeah. Yeah, Duplin. Yeah. What's up with you, Agnolotti? It's like Agnolotti. become your, your, your one. I don't know. I mean, my Agnolotti at, my Agnolotti at Lilia. Really good? Um, I mean, some, <laughs> some have said it's the most popular dish at Lilia for sure. Yeah. Um, but that Agnolotti... You know, that shape could be called tortelli if you wanted to. It could be called ravioli. Like, all those names are sort of interchangeable. You uh, unearthed some some pastas that maybe haven't hit the English-language cookbook circuit, I, I feel. Like, I feel like we did. We talked about this in our interview for, for Taste before, but, like, fill me in a little bit on this. Like, uh, I don't know. I mean, Coolidjones is having a moment, I would say, um, for sure. I think again another Sardinian one, gnocchi sardi, is a is a Sardinian gnocchi. Mal, it's often called malaretas, um, and it's not a gnocchi like people think it's a gnocchi. It's a it's a made with pasta dough, and it's you know it's in the form of sort of a dumpling. Um, those are two big ones. I'm trying to think of like other which one struck you. 
I remember there was a, a stuffed pasta that we talked about. It's off. I'm blanking on it right now. I don't have in my notes um, that we talked about that, that was a regional stuffed pasta that was never written about ever before in the English language. I guess I'll have to like go back. And yeah, you have it. to go back. I can't remember either. Let's talk about now that the book is out. If I feel like there's uh, probably going to be people cooking through the book. Are you now that it's out? What are you learning about the book? Oh, I think it's been awesome to 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 see people's reactions and engage. I'm learning that people keep calling it a bible of pasta. That's fun. Which wasn't what it was intended to be. Like that what it was intended to be is like the 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 main goal besides sort of those those exact sort of topics that we wanted to cover was to create something that was sort of timeless and that you could pick up, hopefully, that people will pick up in 20 years and say, like, still want to cook from it because it's not trendy. It's like, sure, there are dishes that are of a moment and and in those modern classics, but there are dishes that have longevity for hundreds of years in that book. And how do we modernize that but make people want to go back to it time and time again? So that was that was one thing. And people have really resonated with that. I think the cooking through the book, I've seen a lot of like, I'm doing this this weekend. I'm going to do this next weekend. I think what's been really cool is that people are really cooking from it and really reading it. I think what's really cool is that I I feared we wanted this book to be for professionals. I wanted my peers to really respect this book and to be able to learn from it. But we also wanted the average home cook to be able to learn how to make pasta. And that's a tough combo um, to make it interesting enough for a chef, but interesting and, and easy enough for a home cook. And I, my fear was that like, I was going to see on Instagram, like every day people just making like rigatoni red sauce or, you know, penne alla vodka. And like, I'm happy those dishes are in there, but I, I was like, I, that was what I thought was going to happen. And what is happening is people are actually picking the really hard dishes mm-hmm. and they're posting and they're like, they, they look beautiful, like, which is a testament to the editing process. And, and Lorena, who is our editor. Lorena and, Jones. And, yep. Yeah. And, and Talia just, I mean, they were all over me and I'm a, <laughs> I'm a chef and chefs are notorious for not being great recipe writers. Like, you know how to cook and you and and it's very frustrating to have like an editor and a writer be like but you understand that but the the reader doesn't understand that and they really and in particular you know I watched Tali just write and rewrite and like be like does this sound better and does this work and to see the recipes really work like I'm so like I'm so, sure I'm proud of myself for having the recipes but I'm really like I'm honored that they took the time to really push on that and and make them really work. Because if if a lot of people are posting and they're posting their dish next to the picture, and that's really cool, and it looks exactly the same. And beautiful that's, that's, uh, uh, recognition of of writing a cookbook. Yeah, when you see it's that. A, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, you know, you write cookbooks, like, yeah. and I'm sure Dan is not dissimilar from me. Your writing partner. <laughs> I I have to give Daniel Holzman, my partner, uh, a credit for being an amazing writer. So okay, good. I just, um, but I want to go back to the team that you had because it's I think in the weeds a bit, but our audience recognizes that Lorena Jones, her imprint at Ten Speed, or you know, with Ten Speed. Um, she's doing special books there. It's just a really, really cool. So when you when you say that they were pushing you or they're at you, what do you mean exactly? I would like well, first of all, Talia and I had very different methods, and we've yeah. joked about this a lot. Talia is a writer, and she runs yeah. um, 
you know, Punch and and a very successful online magazine. And she used to be involved in Taste with you, obviously. And she's organized and she works on a computer. I am like (laughs) an old school chef who writes on like chits of paper that I take out of like anywhere. And Talia would be like, where's the recipe for blah, blah, blah. And I'd like look through 100 pieces of paper and she'd be like, are you kidding me? And (laughs) So I had to like translate everything onto paper, but I, I think I just it's just about detail. It's about detail and about wording things so that anyone can understand it. And it's about not leaving out that like exactness. And I think as a chef, you never want to be so exact because you want there to be like this flow and pasta has a flow and it has a pasta has like a, a feel. And so my fear is always like if you put something so exacting in a recipe, it doesn't give the reader any leeway to like kind of move. But we d- we address that in the book, actually. And we say like we want here are the guidelines, but we want you to start to feel this. And, and that was important to me. So just a little like push pull of like a really great writer and an organized person versus a, a chef who like, you know, I, I know my stuff, but like I'm not. 100% great at getting it out in, into the world. Well, you are, and I, I, you're modest, but I think it's it's the team effort, and you, you had to come up with the ideas from, I mean, sure. you, you, <laughs> the ideas came from you, so let's give yourself some credit. But you, you don't hide from the, the using a KitchenAid, right? KitchenAid, the, the, using a machine, um, we see guys and, and Nona's with the long pins the, the, and rolling out pasta, which is a certain style of pasta making. Uh, but you don't necessarily require that. You can use a KitchenAid, right, to make pasta. Yeah, I mean, I we we suggest in the book to to really like start with the well method to make your dough, which is which is having a ring of flour and putting your eggs in and mixing it by hand because it gives you what what it feels like. You can feel when it's too dry. You can feel when it's too wet, and and that even with the exact recipe. That changes based on humidity or dryness. Or if you're in Aspen, Colorado, trying to make pasta, it's different than if you're in Manhattan trying to make pasta. And I think the KitchenAid is great. It's great for like being quick and not getting your hands so dirty, but like still coming out with a great result. I mean, I don't make my pasta by hand. We'd go through hundreds of pounds of pasta a day at both restaurants. I I don't make it by hand. We make it in a giant mixer. And we don't we don't use the giant rolling pin, but like they're still rolling it out by hand. Like, you know, there are machines now that make capoletti, tortelli, all that stuff. I and it like breaks my heart because I like I get it from a production standpoint, but I can never bring myself to do that because like part of the pride of what we do is that like every single one of those tortellis is made by a human mm-hmm. um, and they're making 5000 pieces a day. Like it's what time an- do they start? They start at 6 a.m. At, at Missy and they start at 8 a.m. at Lilia. Yeah. And at Missy, there are usually about four of them in the pasta room right now. It was a little more when we when we were doing lunch too. Yeah. Um, but yeah, six a.m. That's a lot of po- five thousand pieces for the day or for the week. For the day. What? Something like that. I might have made I mean, that number up, but sure. Whatever. Five thousand. We we go pretty- through we go through when we were open for lunch and yeah. dinner at Missy, which is fourteen. 14 shifts a week, but we were doing close to 500 people a day on a Saturday, say, and we would sell close to 100 orders. So maybe not, maybe, sorry, 5,000 is an overstatement, 5,000 for the week, 1,500 for the day, 1,500 pieces to 2,000 for the day. 
that's remarkable. Yeah. You really made a bet on Williamsburg with these restaurants. I sure did. And that <laughs> How'd that work out? Seems to be going okay. <laughs> I'm alive. <laughs> oh, it's such a cool neighborhood. I mean, there's so much life there. And, yeah. and I, I, I hope our listeners can get back into your restaurants. And, and Missy I, is not open for for lunch right now, correct? Not open for lunch, but open seven days a week for dinner. That's great. And, and Lilia seven days a week for dinner. And the cafe is open breakfast, lunch, dinner for to go. Uh, JJ Reddick, a podcaster, is uh, definitely a fan of Lilia. He's mentioned on his show a lot. Has JJ been in recently? He hasn't been in recently, but he he comes in. I'm a, yeah, I'm a he's a good fan. friend. I got to shout out JJ. <laughs> you were just at Kitchen Arts and Letters. I saw uh, signing some books, and you said you picked up three books. I did, and I I saw your questions to <laughs> me when you sent them, and I I forgot to look at the third one. Okay, um, two is fine. I I I got the Echabari book from the <gasps> restaurant in Spain, which is like on my massive bucket list of places I wanna wanna eat, and I haven't been and. Um, I actually haven't even had time to, to look through the book, but I'm I'm excited about it and hopefully get myself to Spain. And ends with the steak. The meal ends with the steak. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, have you been? You've been. Dan Holzman has a few times. Oh, really? It's his favorite restaurant in Europe. Absolutely. Really? Hands down for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got I got to get there. Yeah. Um, and then I bought this book on, on Japan. Um, on, on, on Japanese cooking, which I sort of like, I don't know a lot about Japanese cooking. Talia really loves Japanese cooking. I really bought it for her. And it's sort of, you know, my favorite Italian book is is The Splendid Table, which is a regional Italian book about Emilia Romagna, very few pictures and a lot of instruction. And I still pick it up many, many years later. Um, and this book that I bought about Japanese cooking was very similar, like very basic intro to Japanese cooking with just a lot of writing and text and not a lot of pictures. And I just thought it was like special and cool and not something you find every day. I love that store, Kitchen Arts and Letters. Oh, it's the best. It's the best. It's, uh, it's, it's an absolute treasure in New York City. I highly recommend visiting Yeah, it. I mean, that was that was surreal when I, um, I went there to sign books. And I used to go in my 20s like every day off when I was really in a massive learning phase and I would buy books I couldn't afford and I it's really where I, like I started my collection and and so to be back there signing my own book was pretty amazing. So what inspires you right now as a chef? I have to ask this broad question because I, I know you'll go somewhere cool with it. It's tough. I'll tell you the last two years have been really tough because my inspiration always comes from travel. And yeah. and really and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be travel to Italy necessarily. It can be travel anywhere. And I just haven't done it so much in the, in the last couple years. Um, Mexico City was the last the last trip. And that's always inspiring, not even just on a culinary level, but like art and design and all of that stuff. That That's one of the most inspiring places that, that I've been. I've been twice now. But I'm I'm due for a trip to Italy. I I like am aching for it, and I and I miss it. And you know, you have to find inspiration other places. You have I found inspiration a lot in my home cooking. Um, I've cooked a lot at home over the last few years. I've become a much better home cook. That's cool. What's, what are you specializing in? What's what's what's, what's I've done a lot of grilling at cool. at at home. Um, I I have a house in Connecticut and got a Weber grill. I got nothing else. It was like we bought the house during COVID. I learned I've like taught myself how to cook on this Weber. 
like really, really, and Weber's are weird. Like they're, I'm used to cooking on a grill works where it goes up and down and it's, I have this like massive bed of fire and Weber's have one level. And so I've learned- Hot and hotter. Yeah, I've learned how to like do a lot of offset cooking and that's been really fun. I just like, I don't know, like, you know, you you, you cook very differently in a restaurant. Mm-hmm. And, and I think kind of- taking that pressure off. I mean, I still get mad when I like something doesn't come out perfectly at home, but like I think there's something about just like cooking for eating and pleasure and not like trying to be perfect all the time. There's something that's been really lovely about that. That's wonderful to hear. I mean, I think that that should be stressed that cooking is does not have to be beautiful and it can be very imperfect. But um are you I I'm going to assume you're maybe not always grilling meat on the grill. Fish, a lot of fish. Fish is what yeah. I assume, knowing Talia and just the, your style of cooking. So yeah. t- give us one fish, uh, grilled fish kind of concept or recipe or idea that you were I mean, with. I just like like really simple whole grilled, you know, bronzino or um, I've been doing like a tuna dish, grilled tuna with, with like these smothered um, vinegar onions and uh, just playing around. There's a rotisserie. I, I bought the rotisserie attachment too. So a lot of rabbit, rotisserie rabbit, spatchcocked rabbit. Yeah. So just like split open, marinated overnight, lots of like orange and citrus. There's an innate sourness to rabbit meat. Really? To me. Huh. I don't know. You don't taste that? I don't no, know. I find it very clean. It's a clean protein yeah. for you. I don't know. Maybe it's just the preparation I've had recently, but I mean, I find that that's a positive. I'm not trying to say I don't yeah. like that, but I, I felt like it yeah, was I have like a marinade that I love to do. It's like a lot of citrus and coriander and yeah. chilies and fennel and kind of all the things I love. Lots of herbs and just like marinate it overnight and then throw it on the grill, nice and slow. Mm. Oh, sounds great. So let's talk about future books because there's got to be. I know you just wrapped up this one, but come on. Wait, I'm well, afraid to say it. There's an idea. I'll tell you the idea, but it's I can't I can't share it yet. Okay, so what can you say? I can tell you that it would definitely be another book focused around traveling a lot through Italy and very ingredient driven. Okay. How about that? I, I will accept that answer. Um, <laughs> let's pivot it to a slightly more theoretical cookbook because we always ask our guests on the Taste Podcast if there was a book project that you could do. Without a budget or without a deadline, it was just you and this project and time. 100% regional Italian cookbook, like travel through every single region. Every single. Every single one. And, And like really hone in on not just pasta, but like everything and be able to cook with Italians and get their perspective and the whole thing. What is the most underrated region of Italy? I mean... That's a that's a tough one. I, I can know. tell you what I fell in love with. I I'm in love with Ligoria. Yeah. Um and I think it's it's not necessarily underrated, but it's certainly not the Sicilies, Tuscanies, Emilia Romagna's. Ligoria is green. It's just like there's this brightness and the food is bright and it kind of is a northern region but feels southern in many ways and 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 that became sort of my my love while we were doing this book. How do you travel there? What's the route from New York? I mean, I oh, I, you fly into Milan and and drive. We, again, I didn't get to spend a lot of time there. It yeah. was like one of those things. But Genoa is like, you know, I don't think Genoa is a city where you need to spend tons and tons of time. But like a day or two there, I had some really memorable 
bites in Genoa. Um, great street food culture there. Um, amazing sandwich shop. I'm, I'm spacing on the name, but it's like probably 100 square feet. David Kinch actually told oh, cool. me about it from California, Chef David. I mean, um, you pick your meat, you pick your cheese. They have all these crazy toppings and like just just uh. cool bites, but also just their, you know, they do uh, their their uh, culture of using chickpea flour and farinata and mm-hmm. their uh, tortas of vegetables, like just a really cool culture and not necessarily what people think of when they think of Italy. You think of pesto, right, from Liguria? Yeah, so that's the other thing. Pesto, you know, I've been making pesto for years and- uh, in addition to Talia's dexterity with her hands in making pasta, she has an incredible palate, obviously. Yeah, she's yeah. she's in the wine world, and um, but she has an incredible food palate as well. And we sat down in this, in this restaurant in Genoa on our first night there, and she tasted the pesto, and she said, man, there's something, there's something smoky in here. And I'm like, you're insane. <laughs> and I tasted it, and I'm like, oh, I'm kind of getting it. I tasted it again, and I'm like, oh, my God, there's something smoky in here. Like, what is it? And it turned out that they, they're like real, true people in Genoa. This, this gentleman who makes the pesto, he has a company, a specialty food company and also a restaurant. And they use Fiori Sardo cheese, which is a smoked pecorino. Um, and I have now adapted that into my pesto at, at for MP and for Missy, and like I'll never go back. Like it's in the book. That's how we make it. Like so cool. I'll, I'll never go back. It's a, it's an amazing touch that I can't believe. I mean, maybe I just didn't know. Like, but good on Talia for like picking up on that. I love that story because I think when you you talk about pesto, there's a lot of assumptions when you walk into a restaurant and order pesto, but it's just that one little thing, right? That little bit of smokiness yeah. that makes it the the best. Pesto. And then the other thing in Liguria is that they often serve pesto with with chestnut pasta. So chestnut mm-hmm. trophy, a trophy is a hand rolled shape, little like worms. And we were in a, a town and went to this like focaccia in Recco, which is famous for focaccia del Recco, which isn't the focaccio you know. It's two very very thin layers of dough with this cheese in between. It's like mind blowing, but went to this restaurant that's very famous and which was like a nothing restaurant. Again, Trattoria, and we had chestnut trophier with pe- pesto and the sweetness versus like the herbaceous smokiness, saltiness mixed together because what chestnut dough does is it picks up uh, you, you make it with chestnut flour and it picks up a sweetness that's not, you know, what you usually feel like in pasta. And that that was like another mind blowing dish to me. I think there's probably a lot of these stories for their next the hypothetical theoretical book. So, so many. <laughs> Thank you for joining today's podcast, Missy. Thanks for having me. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.